Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week the Kerrang! issue that we'll be looking at is issue number 588, March the 16th, 1996, £1.50 every Wednesday. The cover stars for this week's uh, issue of the magazine are the Wild Hearts. Take the best album you ever had, multiply it by a thousand and you're still nowhere near it. The Wild Hearts, the future's bright, the future's ginger. Metallica UK date plus exclusive Lars interview. Also, Sepultura, Max Meets TV Bay Danny Bear, Terravision Review Kiss Comeback. Six pounds off top new albums by Girls V Boys, Everclear and Shelter. Also, Soundgarden, Paradise Lost, Bad Religion, Almighty, Posters, Bon Jovi, Offspring, Skin and Silverchair. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrangbeck Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrangbeck Issues, Twitter, Kerrangpod, and email Issues at gmail.com. An absolutely jam-packed uh, issue of the magazine this week, so let's jump straight into it. This issue was created with the following stimulants. The fantastic This Is Easy compilation album. The sight of Malcolm Doan in a kiss mask. Napalm Deaf Man Barney Greenway's new Aston Villa tattoo and white legs. Paulie Yates' overdraft. The Murray Walker Damon Hill advert for Pizza Hut. Phone calls from Honeycrack, Garbage and Drain. And Almighty's triumph at the Splash Club. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week, as always, where we always begin, news. Metallica are set to tour the UK during October. Kerrang! can exclusively reveal that the metal superstars are all set to confirm six British dates as part of an extensive world tour. The band are expected to play the following shows. Birmingham NEC October 5th, Newcastle Arena 7th, Dublin Point 9th, London Olds Court 12th, Manchester 9X Arena 15th and Edinburgh Royal Highlands Centre on the 18th. These dates will be part of a four-month European tour that will take the band to more than 15 countries. Fans of the band should know, however, that the UK dates have not been officially announced and tickets are not yet on sale at any of the above venues. Metallica will begin touring on June 27th in the States, headlining 23 dates on the Lollapalooza 96 tour. Already confirmed to join them on the bill are Soundgarden and the Ramones. There is also a strong possibility that Rancid will be appearing. Country and Western legends Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings are expected to be added to the bill for selected dates. Metallica are still working on the follow-up to the hugely successful Metallica album with producer Bob Rock. It's expected that recording will be completed by early May, with the record still to be titled coming out through the Mercury label in early June. And, as things stand at the moment, the album should feature 14 brand new songs. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Tull has admitted that his own life and death struggle has inspired one song on the band's forthcoming album. Speaking exclusively to Kerrang! from Seattle, Tull revealed that the lyrics for Never The Machine Forever were based on his own personal experiences. I wrote the lyrics for it, he says. It's about a life and death match between an individual and a less specifically defined entity. And yes, it's based on personal experience. The enigmatic uh, guitarist also revealed that the Seattle Quartet's fifth studio album, which is due for a late May release, will see them experimenting still further with their sound. Some songs are a little bit softer and more introspective than before, and there's a whole bunch of songs that are really fast, he explains. 
There's less of the big, thick guitar, mid-tempo, slow grunge songs. In fact, I don't think there are any of those. And there's some weird things happening in there too. Well, Ben Shepard has done a lot more writing than usual this time around. The as yet untitled album was recorded at Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard's Studio Litho in Seattle. Among the tracks set to appear on the set are Never the Machine Forever, Hot Rod Death Toll, Boot Camp, Blow Up the Outside World and Devil King of Children. How weird have we gone, ponders Toll. Well, it's weird for us rather than weird in the absolute sense. Although maybe a couple of songs are strange, there's some mandolin on the record and there's one song that's almost ambient. There's less of that Soundgarden stamp, but it's still a distinct Soundgarden sound. Basically, everything's more vocal oriented. Less riffy, but still with plenty of heavy guitar everywhere. Soundgarden will release a new as yet unconfirmed single through A&M on May the 6th and a world tour is expected to follow the album. Sepultura were wrongly rumoured to have died in a plane crash this week, causing an outbreak of panic at the offices of their UK record company Roadrunner, who received a number of calls from distraught Seps fans, convinced that their heroes had indeed perished in a plane disaster. According to the reports, the Brazilian metal stars, whose new album Roots entered the UK charts at number 4, were said to have been in the chartered plane that crashed in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but as more reports filtered back to the UK, it emerged that although there were Brazilian musicians killed in the tragedy, they were actually members of a pop band called Mamonas Assassinas, who are one of the biggest bands of their type in South America. Sepultura themselves were at home in Phoenix, Arizona when the accident happened, preparing for a North American tour supporting Ozzy Osbourne, due to begin on April the 9th in Vancouver. Therapy have expanded their lineup to a four-piece, following the recruitment of new drummer Graham Hopkins and cellist Martin McCarrick. Hopkins, who was previously with fellow Irish band My Little Funhouse, replaces the recently departed Fife Ewing, while McCarrick, formerly a member of veteran New Wavers Susie and the Banshees, has become a full-time member of the band after touring with them throughout their Infernal Love campaign. The New Look Therapy are currently rehearsing for a US tour with New York Noisters' Girls Against Boys, which will start in May. However, they are not expected to play UK shows until next year. Therapy are due to go back into the studio during the autumn to record a new album which will be released in the first half of 1997. Pearl Jam vocalist Eddie Vedder shocked a TV audience of millions when he made a surprise appearance on a top-rated US chat show to pay back the host for his constant Vedder impersonations. David Letterman, probably the most famous chat show host in the States, had taken to mimicking Vedder on his hugely popular Late Show and had been seen on several occasions during the past few weeks attempting to croon 10LP favourite Black. And Letterman, who regularly has rock bands guesting and performing on his show, had been trying to get Vedder to appear on the programme and duet with him. But the Pearl Jam singer hadn't appeared remotely interested, apparently refusing to return calls from Letterman and his production team. Finally, after one particularly sharp bout of Letterman piss-taking, Vedder suddenly appeared from the wings to the obvious surprise of Letterman and his TV audience. The singer then demonstrated the difference between the real Vedder and his TV star imposter and belted out a snippet of black with backing provided by Letterman's house band. Vedder then disappeared as quickly as he'd arrived, leaving Letterman almost speechless. Unfortunately, Letterman's dreams of duetting with Vedder never came to fruition, though the host did persuade the clearly embarrassed singer back on stage to take a quick bow before the programme cut to a commercial break. Needless to say, Vedder stole the show from Letterman's guests, including Hollywood hardman Dennis Hopper.
American news, starting this week with Don K in New York. So, Eddie Vedder shows up to sing a verse of Black on The Late Show with David Letterman, then hangs around to catch the Ramones before jetting back to LA to pick up his Grammy for best hard rock performance. But rumour had it, he was flying back to New York for a Home Alive benefit at the West Beth Theatre last Saturday. Ed didn't make it, but the show was well attended with excellent sets from headliner Seven Year Bitch, Roof Roof and a host of others and another room devoted to spoken word. Home Alive offers self-defence instruction and resources to combat violence against women, domestic abuse, gay bashing and racism. It was founded in memory of Mia Zapata, lead singer of Seattle band The Gits, who was brutally raped and murdered two years ago by an assailant who's still at large. Industrial newcomers God Lives Underwater were kicked off the Space Hog tour after just four shows. While Space Hog officially stated that the two bands weren't musically compatible, God Lives Underwater's Jeff Terzo claims we were getting in the way of their rock star experience. He reports kids coming up to GOU and saying they blew Space Hog off stage with the crowd thinning noticeably before Space Hog set. Jeff also stated, being on tour with Space Hog is like dealing with Spinal Tap every day. Ouch. This week's club activity included an ace party at Don Hills for the fun-loving criminals, a local rap-punk combo just signed to EMI. The party had free and dangerously powerful vodka martinis plus an energetic set by the criminals. Said party was thrown by Seconds magazine known for bashes that leave people tired and emotional. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. The big Grammy shebang was held last week, but I wouldn't be caught dead at any of the ceremonies, besides the Beverly Hills 90210 was on. But the parties, that's another story. Few Brits may recall that John F. Kennedy had a brother, Robert, who ran for the US presidency in 1968, and like his older brother, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. It happened in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles where Warner Brothers chose to have their Grammy party. The hotel closed a few years ago, but it's still a popular location for film and video shoots, not to mention spectacular Hollywood parties. So, which celebrities were there? Well, attending this party were some of the biggest names in the music business. Cher, Grammy winner Seal, plus Chris Isaac and country star Dwight Yoakam. And perusing the abundant food spread were Stone Temple Pilots' Scott Weiland, Alex and Eddie Van Halen were also there, as were Perry Farrell and members of Porno for Pyros. Also among the crowded throng were R.E.M.'s Mike Mills plus Dave Grohl and some other Foo Fighters. American comedian Adam Sandler in his trademark hockey uniform plus big time winners Alanis Morissette and Hootie and the Blowfish. Later in the evening, Raging the Machine's Tom Morello showed up, hot-footing it straight from the raging Sony party in Beverly Hills where he was surrounded by the likes of Pearl Jam and the presidents of the USA. And judging by how many people said they ran into Mariah Carey in the women's loo, you'd think she stayed there all night. Elsewhere around town, MCA threw a big bash at the Four Seasons Hotel, attended by stars like Liza Minnelli, Primus and Snoop Doggy Dogg, and EMI had a party at Swish Restaurant Rex. Attendees included the Foo Fighters and Megadeth. We now join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Nirvana have joined that dubious group of musicians who've had laser shows dedicated to them. The show is called Lays Nirvanas and took place last week at Seattle's Pacific Science Center. What it basically means is that fans of the band can lie on the floor and watch a colourful laser show as they listen to their favourite songs cranked up to maximum volume. It'd be enough to make Kurt Cobain turn over in his grave if he had one. Nirvana have also been honoured in another bizarre manner, with a jazz version of Come As You Are being recorded by the Charlie Hunter Trio. 
led by a former member of rap act The Disposable Heroes of Hip Hopracy. The new version is 6 minutes long and is on the band's debut album, as well as a recently released compilation called Breakthrough Masters of Modern Jazz, out on Esquire Blue Note. Seven Year Bitch are about to resurface with the release of their major label debut LP Gatto Negro, that's Black Cat to URI, two years after the band first signed to Atlantic. Says bassist Elizabeth Davis, we always use birth analogies when it comes to making records. Our labour was kinda long, but the birth was enjoyable, and the baby is beautiful, adds singer Selena Vigil. Yeah, and it takes an elephant two years to have a baby too. According to the bosses behind one of the internet's most commonly used search facilities, Pearl Jam are second only to the Beatles in cyberspace. InfoSeek, a company who provide information on any subject, lists the Seattle Stars as the second most popular band on the web. One thing I will say before we move on uh, in this episode is I love, I absolutely love how Kerrang! is talking about the internet at this point. Obviously it's 96 and it's so new that people just don't really know what's going on. But I've never heard of, um, what was the company they said? InfoSeek. I'm guessing that's a very, very early, uh, you know, pre-Yahoo search, pre-Google, um, you know, online, what they call search engine, that's, what I'm, that's the word I was looking for. The idea that the Pearl Jam are second to the Beatles in cyberspace for all searches ever. I mean, I can't even imagine what the number one search is these days. It's probably TikTok or something like that. I mean, how far we've come in sort of, you know, 25 odd years. It's quite unbelievable, isn't it, really? Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week, Sepultura take Jason Arnop to the Hotel Babylon. Danny Bear, the famed babe presenter of ITV's Hotel Babylon, is walking down a grand staircase as the cameras roll. You don't have to be glamorous, good looking, or even socially gifted to stay here, she Colgate smiles, but it does help so God knows how this lot got a reservation. This is an ingenious link, introducing Sepultura onto the show. Amusingly, Ms. Bear continually makes a bollocks of the word ferocious during the latter half of her intro. When this happens, she mutters, oh fucking hell, grins her lovable grin and warily makes her way back up to the top of the stairs. Quite remarkably, given their utter disregard for melody or niceties, Max Cavalera and his posse have made it onto popular telly once again, and this time, Unlike their appearance on the word a while back, their fans aren't standing in a cage like a bunch of wazzocks. They're thrashing around out front while a horde of renter trendies pretend to be equally excited by intense power chords and vocals. The 30 or so Sepultura fans here today were handpicked at London's Astoria venue during the hazy hours of Friday's Rock Scene Club and ferried here today by coach. The show is filmed in a huge mansion type building. We're legally bound to keep its location a secret like you really care. The sets include a bar for the smaller bands, a dining room for interviews and the main stage area. Amusingly, Britpop's second division as menswear play earlier in the afternoon and our intrepid sets fans are obliged to merge with the crowd and dance around. Clad in knee-length shorts despite the weather, they do very well. We had to dance shrugs a Fear Factory shirt in Simon afterwards. If I hadn't, the bloke with the microphone would have gone, Oi hippie, dance now. The bloke with the mic is Danny, the warm-up man, and he isn't a Nazi at all. I just tried to get everyone psyched, he explains, but these Sepultura fans are brilliant. Usually you have to deal with disco darlings who've got no idea how to move to metal stuff. Sepultura are performing Roots Bloody Roots this evening. The band have just flown in from Madrid and after this they're bound for Paris. 
Their sound check alone is so loud that Danny the warm-up man hands out earplugs to the crew. Wisely, Gloria Cavalera has already installed cute headphones on their two kids, Zion and Igor. Not far away, Danny Bear, decked out in bright orange, is enchanted by Zion and Igor's headphones. But what did Danny think of Sepultura? Loud she giggles. Will the menswear fans like it? Maybe they'll surprise us. Actually, they do. Up on the balcony, while Sepultura play for real, a London clubber called Rolston jerks around. Still, he reckons, the singer sounds like he's got a bad case of wind. We now come to this week's cover stars, The Wild Hearts, the unusual suspects. In the last six months, The Wild Hearts have been on the verge of splitting up, rushed into hospital and lost in the depths of the Thai jungle. Main man Ginger tells Razel how they survived it all to make a new LP and start their own record label. Goodbye East West, God bless the Wild Hearts. This is a sarcastic glorious line from a frantic new Wild Hearts song called In Like Flynn. It puts everything about the band's current state of mind into perspective. The Wild Hearts' long-running, well-publicised battle with their former record label is now history. Ginger and the lads have seemingly successfully ejected themselves from the deal and started their own label, which will hopefully be called Round Records because they are, explained Ginger helpfully. The Wild Hearts' first release on Round Records will be a new single, Sick of Drugs, on April 8th. It will feature Underkill, Bad Time to be Having a Bad Time and Sky Chaser High as B-sides. It will be followed on April 29th by Fishing for Luckies. Yes, that one. Only different, it will feature six new songs and two re-recorded tracks and none of the B-sides or alternative versions that East West plan to include on their versions. Patience, all will be revealed. The Church Studios, London. Saturday night has disappeared into the early hours of Sunday morning. The Wild Hearts entourage have returned here from the Ash Gig at Yulu. Ginger, Jeff Stretfield guitar, Danny bass and Rich drums are remixing the new stuff here with Knob Man Al Clay. It's a big old place, used to be a church, would be my educated guess. Kerrang photographer Dave Willis is there to greet us and faces the daunting task of organising these inebriated reprobates for this chucked together at the last minute photo and interview thing, living on the edge and all of that. The Wild Hearts though appear to be in fine and acrobatic fettle this evening, or early morning. In the church's spacious second floor recreation area, not only do they manage to pose merrily for pictures, they also indulge in sporadic bouts of playing football and basketball and jamming on an array of bongos. Ginger even climbs into the building's rafters for the benefit of a good photo opportunity. Although he almost manages to break his ankle after a precarious fall to earth. But you know Ginger, if he ain't breaking a limb, he's breaking up the band. Which leads us back to the point when it became clear that no, the Wild Hearts would not be self-imploding after all. We played the warm-up gigs in Britain because Ginger in the final three turbulent months of 95 and all of a sudden we realised we were a good band. So by the time we got to Japan we thought, this is not the sort of band that should split up, just yet. And the reception in Japan really was amazing. Basically, Japan was the first step of keeping the band together. When we came back we thought British audiences couldn't match it, but he nods, they did. The Japanese trip was self-financed, as were the ensuing British dates. Where did they get the dosh for such a lavish jaunt? Gary Garner, our manager, is a wizard, says Ginger. Jesus couldn't match the scams that he's pulled together. Once they were off the road, the Wild Hearts set about getting off East-West and getting their own thing together. Basically, when East-West decided not to release any more singles off the Fuck album, we realised that this record company wasn't working within our interests, claims Ginger. And then, when we heard they were going to release Fishing for Luckies without our consent, it was obviously time to go. 
So it was either split up or leave the company. And we did it. We got out. How? Um, because I think the god of fucking good luck was on our side. And round records? We'll license it through Warner Brothers in this country, he explained. I don't know where it's going to be in America. Somewhere we'll hopefully get to play. We've got our own record company now and we're going to say, hey, the Wild Hearts should be in America. But where does this leave your reported phenomenal debts to East West? I'm not a money person, he shrugs. I couldn't even guess or care. All I do know is we won't have to go through all the bureaucratic corporate nonsense with an idea. We've got the trust of the financiers that we're doing the right thing. And being an ideas man, you just like to have your ideas in process. So once round records have been established, could you sign other acts? If we do well, then we can, yeah, he replies. That's the view of this thing. While Ginger speaks, Danny, Rich and Jeff are beginning to suffer from sleep deprivation and general out of their treesness. Still, Danny is no longer noticeably hobbling after the nightmare operation to fix the dodgy knee that gave out on him on stage at the 94 Reading Festival and during one of last year's warm-up UK shows. He's still pissed off that they didn't actually replace the kneecap as he planned to use the old one as an ashtray. Rich is also looking far too smart for his own health these days. He has a tear in his eye every time he tells anyone about the guitar Ginger bought him for Christmas. And he's planning a solo album which is tentatively titled Life's a Rich and Then You Die. Then there's Jeff, the new boy, the man who replaced ex-senseless things Mark Kent after the latter came and went in a blaze of headline glory. I'd actually always thought the Wild Hearts job was mine, he reveals. I don't mean to sound cocky, but even when I saw Mark Kent's leaping around with them on top of the pops, I thought, you wanker, you can't do that, that's my job. Later, at about four in the morning, Ginger and I have a final chat. The new Wild Hearts songs I've heard are, as ever, infuriatingly excellent. Jeff fits in like the proverbial hand in glove. Ginger agrees. It's weird he blinks, eyes glazed, a stupid lazy grin target in his mouth. To me, Jeff's just always been in the band. It used to be difficult waking people up in the studio and getting them motivated, but Jeff pushes himself. And that's what excites me most of all about musicians. When Danny pops his knee out, he doesn't go crying into the fucking dressing room. The doctors go, get off the fucking stage, you silly cunt. And he goes, nah, I'm fucking staying here, it's my gig. And Rich was dying once from a chest infection, but he wouldn't leave the fucking stage either. That's the Wild Hearts, man. Right then, the revamp Fishing for Luckies, a record which was close to being wordily retitled from heaven to the vagina. The more shit you go through, the more you know there's more shit to get through. If you thought it was already kaleidoscopic before, you're going to need brain shades to listen to it now with its six all-new, all-ace Wild Hearts tunes. Yet Ginger considers this Luckies to be strictly for the fans who couldn't get hold of it the first time around, rather than the third official album. What Fishing for Luckies is, says Ginger, is a stopgap album. It was going to come out on East West as Fishing for More Luckies, with a couple of crappy outtakes added. We stopped it. The original limited edition 5,000 copies were sold through the fan club. There are 17,000 people in the fan club, and there are more people than those in the fan club who want it. So the way we figured it is uh, we released Fishing for Luckies for the people, jettison the two songs that were available as a single, Geordie in Wonderland and Love Bank, and give them six brand new songs. Plus, re-record the best two songs from the tour. Weekend, originally featured on the Don't Be Happy EP, and 29 Times of Pain, a B-side from the Sucker Punch single. People went fucking nuts for them live. These same people turned that in force to vote for the Wild Hearts in the Crank Readers poll. If Bon Jovi didn't exist, Ginger's mob would have cleaned up. He is still stunned. It was just not expected, he says, staring misty-eyed into somewhere. There's no words for it. When the business says you're doing well and the press says you're doing well, it means nothing. When a fan says you're doing well, it means everything. With my hand on my heart, the fans are why we didn't split up. 
in Ginger's grand thing of schemes are the band where he'd want them to be right now. Obviously I'd like the Wild Hearts to be bigger, he admits. People that are doing far inferior music to what we're doing are actually millionaires. I mean, we still can't afford radio packs for on stage, we're just not rolling in it by any stretch of the imagination. How well did Fuck actually do them? East West killed it after two singles, he insists, but I consider it a successful album because it's what I wanted to do. Earlier this year, Ginger surpassed himself in the I can't believe he did that stakes. He's always expected to spring surprises, but not to nip over to Thailand for some punishing workouts with a Wild Heart security guy, Decker, in the name of getting fit. I was becoming a bit of a slob, he offers, drinking too much and doing too many other things. But running in that sort of heat, doing weights and Thai boxing was really hardcore. It was just what I needed. Any diluting of the blackness of the soul? Oh, that was just a side path I took. It's over now. No problem. Ginger has also been of no fixed abode for two years. I can't call myself homeless, he reckons. I had a car to sleep in. I had studios to record and sleep in. I had tour buses to tour and sleep in. I just didn't have the trap into the domesticated fucking regular urban survivor. I just winged it and it let me know how good the people I know really are. People who would let me sleep on their couch. But at this moment in time, he confesses, I want to unload the shit in my suitcase. There is a big three inch layer of lard at the bottom and I just want to see what's in it. A final psychological question. Are you the bloke who would upset the apple cart just to see which way the apples would roll? Yes, definitely. Because I hate being bored. If people are just sitting around being bored, I will piss someone off just to see how it goes. If nobody else will do it, I will provide the fucking twist of the day. And it's the least I can do. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have been of service. Beaver, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives, and the first content reviewed this week is Almighty, supported by Curb Dog at the King's Cross Splash Club, London, on Friday, March the 1st. Reviewed by Jason Unup, this one gets 5 out of 5. After a worryingly long period of inactivity, Curb Dog are back in green. They may be one man down after the less than amicable departure of guitarist Billy Dalton, but they're armed more than ever with confidence and cheek. Guitarist singer Cormac Battle and his Kilkenny cohorts have realised that playing live isn't necessarily something to get uptight about. Battle now comes out with pearls of intentional comedy like the best onstage quote above. Naturally, they play their Metallica battling Pearl Jam on the fields of Armageddon standards like End of Green and Cleaver, but there are some interesting gems among the new batch. Mexican Wave heralds a new shade of noise for Curb Dog with an unheard of vocal technique and a more accessible approach. Other stuff is along similar lines as before but mostly better. Prepare to hit the ceiling. It's easy to be cynical about the artists formerly known as The Almighty. Their albums change style every time out, dabbling in a biker rock, Metallica, grunge and punk. And now a name change, complete with curvy Britpop logo. In fact, it's too easy to doubt The Almighty. Tonight, their varying strands of musical direction lock together to form a steel noose. They're a mind blower and the whole issue of trend setting versus trend following becomes redundant. At the end of the day, a band are either good or bad. While previous shows have unwisely tipped on the motorhead side of the volume scale, Almighty charge onto the Splash Club stage with their power sensibly well honed. Maybe it's the restricted size of the PA in this tiny sweaty club, or maybe it's occurred to frontman Ricky Warwick that any jackass can twist up a volume knob, but it sounds great and people go mad uh, with mic stands jolting all over the place. Warwick is fortunate to leave with clenched teeth intact. The best excerpts of each Almighty album are formidable. The rousing rock of Wild and Wonderful and Free and Easy which don't sound especially dated, the weighty crush of Addiction, 
which has only become more convincing with time. Jonestown Mind with its irresistible chorus and of course, a black glove fistful of straight ahead maulers like Move Right In, Crank and Welcome to Defiance. The set's all the stronger for not persisting with one style and the material from new album Just Add Life tempers the pace superbly. All Sussed Out has less obvious snarl and bite than previous hate fests but shows that songwriting is out of premium for Almighty more than ever before. Dead Happy is a towering shout-along classic, even if rock purists might sneer at the supergrass stomp of its verses. Earlier stuff, remember the days when the Almighty was still a full-force loving machine, still receives large cheers, begging the question of how far Almighty can cross over from their original fanbase. But as long as they're happy, so are we. Dead Happy. The next concert reviewed this week is Into Another, supported by Gorilla. This took place at the Camden Underworld London on Saturday, March the 2nd. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 4 out of 5. The audience for Darby's Gorilla could have been squeezed into a phone box. Critics' enthusiasm for the band formed from the ashes of the beyond has yet to filter through to the paying punters. Gorilla adds samples and an electric violin to a moody, thrashing maelstrom. But its imagination and innovation doesn't always translate into good songs. Bulldozer suggests there are melodies under the crunch, but it's nothing to get excited about. Thankfully, Into Another's delayed London debut more than compensates. The venue has filled up impressively, and the New Yorkers would have every reason to be cocky. They look great, they've got a fine post-hardcore pedigree, and they're mixing a plethora of rock styles into a compelling, inventive, and unique sound. Their recent album, Seamless, is full of deft anthemic rock, and live the band are dynamic and almost uncategorizable. Jimmy Pager-like guitarist Pete Moses powers the band for a set which veers from Pink Floyd-esque psychedelia sweeps through the melodic power of Pearl Jam and Shudder to Think to some up-tempo punk riffing. The band are obviously talented but never descend into muso-wank territory with the emphasis always on strong tunes. Richie Birkenhead is an energetic, emotional frontman carrying the swoop of The Way Down and Locksmiths and Lawyers with clarity and drama. A band who combine glamour with power and hardcore sus with classic songs it's hard to see how they can fail. And lastly this week for live reviews, we have Ash supported by Placebo at the Yulu London on Saturday, March the 2nd. Reviewed by Razel, this gets 3 out of 5. Placebo. New bugger all about the trio except their singer-guitarist sounds like Helium Larynx Geddy Lee of Rush. And to be honest, I didn't think she was that bad. Yet every song going chingy 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 did get testing. And then... When it was pointed out the front person was in fact a geezer, all their points for cuteness evaporated. Front half of the crowd got off on them though, becoming unnecessarily rowdy, bloody students, who let them in? The last time I reviewed Ash, I was moved to gushing metaphorically about the brats being armed with guns, etc. The trailer mini-LP was a swerving grindfest of magnificence, and I began spreading the word of Ash to uninitiated fools. If tonight had been my trial by fire, the Irish trio would have received an okay nod but I would have wondered what all the fuss was about. Is it vocalist guitarist Tim Wheeler? The little punk can switch easily from some shimmering guitar rhythms to yummy abstract distortion workouts, but he's not exactly a disciple of the Lemmy school of how to terrorise a mic. Tim just came across as vulnerable, insipid, leaving as ever. Bassist Mark Hamilton sporting new cropped and dyed barnet to zip around the stage like he got a confused rocket up the arse. The material. Uncle Pat, Kung Fu, Jack's Names the Planets et al. is testimony to their precocious ability to kick out a spiffing tune and leaves you in awe of what they could be capable of in two years' time. But tonight, 
this teen machine was on autopilot. The man who would be king. Lars Ulrich lives, breathes, eats and sleeps Metallica. His obsession helped them conquer the world, but his rockstar lifestyle nearly broke them up and now he tells Paul Elliott he knows that no band on earth is bigger or better. Lars Ulrich breezes into the living quarters of the plant studios in Sausalito, California where Metallica are cutting their new album. There's a lot on his mind right now. The album is in its crucial final stages, but Lars wants to talk football. He starts by winding this particular Arsenal fan up about this evening's Coca-Cola Cup semi-final defeat against Aston Villa. He goes on to ponder uh, the fact that Chelsea currently have their best team since the 70s and he's fully aware of Luton Town's temporary revival in the Endsley League Division 1. Ulrich puts this train spotter-esque knowledge of British football down to the fact that he's not a septic tank, Cockney rhyming slang for yank. I grew up in Denmark, so I followed a lot of British soccer, he continues. I loved Chelsea when Peter Osgood played for them in the 70s, and a bunch of the guys in the road crew are English, so I hear a lot of football talk when we're on the road. One of the guys supports Luton Town, another supports Warsaw. The Metallica drummer's passion for football is such that he wanted to start the band's 96 world tour in England in June to coincide with the European Championships at which his beloved Denmark will be competing. But then the offer to headline Lollapalooza came along. Passionate and obsessed are in fact the two words most used to describe the hyperactive Ulrich. Ever since he saw his first real life gig, Deep Purple in Copenhagen in February 1973, he has been fanatical about hard rock music. In the early 80s, he was a regular visitor to the UK, following West Midlands heavy metal band Diamond Head around the country, dressed in spandex trousers and a Geordie black metal mob Venom t-shirt and infusing to anyone who would listen about the new wave of British heavy metal movement that had just been kickstarted in this country by the likes of Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. These days, of course, Lars lives and breathes Metallica. He can be flash and brash. Some have found him arrogant or bloody-minded, but there's never been any doubt in his ferocious commitment to making Metallica the biggest rock band in the world. Since he first hooked up with James Hetfield in October 1981, he doesn't seem to have taken a minute off from navigating the good ship Metallica. It's hard, especially at the stage we're at now with a new album he sighs. I took a day off last Sunday, I was driving around with my girlfriend and we had one of those multiple CD players in the trunk and one of the 10 CDs in there is the Metallica CD. He laughs, I'm driving along thinking, shall I press number 7, which I know is the Metallica CD and then I thought, you know what, I think I'll be a better person tomorrow if I don't, if I spare her the fucking grief. When you're creating, it's always there, what are you going to call the record, what are you going to call song 7? In the touring stages you can become more detached but at the same time it's your life. It's very hard for me to listen to anybody playing music without analysing the arrangement, without thinking about how the snare drum sounds. It's part of your gig. As you're well aware, one of the long-running jokes is my obsession with all this. In the last few years, I've realised that I could mentally remove myself from it for periods of time, and I find that it gets easier for me to pull away. The hungriest I've ever been was with the Black Album. The whole year leading up to that record, I knew what was going to go on. Maybe it sounds arrogant, but I could feel it. It was lining up right. The songs, the timing of what was going on around us. I just knew that after 10 years, everything was coming together at the right time. And I was pretty determined to see it through. But I still end up dealing with a couple of hours of shop, of business, each day. From the outside, Ulrich and Hetfield have always appeared to dominate Metallica. There have been rumours of the two main men grappling for musical control of the band. Speculation that bassist Jason Newsted was unhappy with his lack of involvement in the creative process. During the making of the new album, Lars insists these matters have been resolved. 
There hasn't been much tension between me and James this time, he begins. But there was a period of tension between me and Jason. He kind of felt like an outsider, and a couple of things led to heated discussions. So me and him went away and talked about it for a little while. And with Lars and Jason, the best of buddies again, Metallica remain an incredibly strong unit. But things seemed to get a little shaky a few years ago when the Black Album went supernova and Lars started indulging in the rockstar lifestyle. I think it culminated in 1992 when we toured America with Guns N' Roses, he confesses. I was looking into some of that rockstar stuff a little bit, hanging out with some of those guys, kind of exploring their world a little bit. James was off on his own trip, doing a lot of things by himself, and for a couple of months in 92, I could have gone off the tracks, but I think that the second we feel something is amiss, we pull together. With the success of the Black Album, the only thing that matters is we got through it. But I gotta tell you, he adds, this is the strongest we've ever been as a band. Now we sit around once a week and the four of us talk about what we should call the record. It was always just me and James before. Five years ago, Jason would call up with some idea and I'd go, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. I called him six weeks ago and said, you got any ideas for the LP title? He goes, are you serious? You could almost hear the phone drop. As if to prove the point, Lars jumps up and rushes off to find a recent Polaroid photo of the band. Lars is wearing NAF shorts and a metal church t-shirt, while guitarist Kurt Hammett sports a camp floppy hat, silk shirt and scarf. The four of them are pissing themselves laughing. This is the most relaxed this band has ever been, Lars Beams, and I think that ultimately that shows up in the music. Yes, the music. Lars Ulrich is hugely proud of what Metallica have done in the studio this time around. He stretches out on the squeaky leather sofa just outside the big room where the new Metallica songs were recorded. He rests his mug of Earl Grey tea on an ancient tabletop Galaxian video game and infuses about what's going to be coming your way in June. Radical, exciting, new Metallica music. The word experimental is so corny, he says, squirming a little in his seat. But we went into the studio before we were done writing. I don't think anyone really knew where the record was going to end up when we started it. We're just blessed with the fact that whatever we do ends up sounding like Metallica, but still a little different. We recorded a lot of this album live, as a band, right off the floor, so it has much more of a band sound than ever before. More of a group spirit and a whole other level of confidence and attitude. The riffs are becoming much greasier, bluesier, dirtier. I just think it's top. Lars stops, smiles and chuckles. If Supreme Confidence was a picture, it would look a lot like Lars Ulrich does now. He nods. I played the new album to a friend of mine and he said it sounded incredibly confident. Kind of arrogant. We really cruised through it because we know we can do this better than anybody else. Feedback. And the long hairs of 1996 are not happy. The letter of the week this week begins. While reading your review of Silverchair at the Astoria, I was pissed off, to say the least, at the opening sentence. London's Astoria is packed to the rafters with thousands of overexcited kids trembling at the prospect of paying homage to heroes the same age as they are. I went to this gig and I really enjoyed myself, but I am not an overexcited kid. I am 18 and I was not paying homage to my heroes. My heroes are dead. They were Jim Morrison and Kurt Cobain. Did your reviewer actually go to this gig? Because if she did, she might have realised that some people were over the age of 16. At 18, I do not count myself as a kid any longer. I think your reviewer needs her eyes testing. Silverchair are a bloody great band, and so are Trippin' Daisy and Everclear. So give the fans some respect and don't call us kids again. Granted, a lot were kids, but some weren't. I don't normally feel strongly about things other than Nirvana, but this just pissed me off. An extremely pissed off grown-up Nirvana and Silverchair fan. 
I'm a 20 year old music lover. I think for myself and I know what metal is good and what is shite. I don't follow trends, but I don't necessarily believe in sticking steadfastly with tradition either. And this is one reason why I was glad that the fans booed Iron Maiden's recently released songs that the gig reviewed in issue 584. Iron Maiden were the first metal band I got into and at present Number of the Beast is my second favourite album ever. But the last three records have had Maiden running on autopilot and most of the songs have lacked quality, originality and attitude. Steve Harris to me was the best metal songsmith of the 80s but he seems to think all Maiden fans are stuck in a time warp and that they only want to hear songs with galloping bass lines and lyrics about war. For one, I think it's time for Maiden to progress. Maybe Steve thinks that if he doesn't stick with the sound which he pioneered, the Maiden fans will think he's sold out, that that would be bollocks. Because there is a difference between progressing and bandwagoning jumping. I believe that it's time for Maiden to draw inspiration from the bands which they influenced in the first place. Such as Metallica and Paradise Lost. I hope this letter is printed even in edited form as long as the point gets across and that Steve reads it because he needs to get the message that the fans want Maiden to move boldly into the 90s and I want to see the band get back to the cutting edge and reclaim their crown as kings of metal. I have a feeling that if Steve takes the blinkers off then Maiden have the potential to create at least one more absolutely fucking classic album. The legendary JK from Belfast. First thanks for the great stickers. The Bon Jovi, Ash, Eddie Vedder and Skin ones are on my bog wall next to my Noel Edmonds poster. Now I can concentrate when I take a shit. Secondly, why does the English speaking world have so little metal media cover? On holiday in southern Portugal there was a great radio station that played metal 24 hours a day. Pantera, Metallica, Sepultura, Down Therapy and even Rage Against the Machine. If Sepultura can make the top 20 with Roots Bloody Roots it stands to reason that there are enough people to warrant a metal show here. But what do we get instead? Noisy Mothers and Radio 1's rock show taken off the air. Oh, I forgot. Heavy Metal turned you into an axe-wielding Satanist. What bollocks. Simon Davis leads. Gagging for a shagging. Please print a picture of the world's greatest drummer, Jimmy Chamberlain of the Smashing Pumpkins. He is the epitome of sexiness. Jimmy, a picture of you would just make my heart throb just as passionately as the pulsating sexy rhythm of you on drums. Carrie Pumpkinchild. Thank Christ someone has woken up and at last decided to do something about the major drug problem in the music industry in the States. Issue 586. I thank Aerosmith and Blind Melon for their participation and sincerely wish that more folk would wake up and do the same. An organisation like this is the first step towards tackling the problem. It may be a bit late for Kurt Cobain and Shannon Hume, but maybe it will prevent those in similar situations from falling over the edge. I for one still miss Nirvana. As for those living in denial over here in the UK, fucking wake up and sniff the shit that's floating in the air like a mist on every street corner in inner city Britain. An organisation like this one in the States is severely needed and will prevent many tragic deaths of some very talented folk. Maybe we need to step back a little and to realise that our music idols are in fact human and will almost certainly have some very real, very human problems. Folk like Kurt and Shannon may be on the edge of that deadly cliff and about to jump. Thanks again to Aerosmith and Blind Melon. Severe Green Day, Nirvana fan. I turned on the teletext recently, only to find PJ and Duncan described as rockers. I turned to the rock press for salvation, only to find you reviewing shite like I wanna be a hippie. Come on Kerrang, get your priorities right. Lars Ulrich's grotty earring, Tangworth. I fucking had it. Another shite review for a Bon Jovi single. Why? These Days is one of the best songs on the album and you've rightly been praising the band to the skies just lately but I call Bon Jovi singles it's automatically called rubbish. Bon Jovi's album got 4Ks last June so how the hell can all the songs on it be crap? 
The single reviewers need to listen to the songs more instead of judging bands by their popularity with teenage girls. Jackie Laswada. Terrorvision down 15 places in the top 40. Ugh, the evil underpants stained villainy of it all. John Collar, Darby. Ill communication. Sleaze days. Cocaine fueled fights. Champagne binges. Weird sex and decapitated human heads. Everyday occurrences in the lives of girls against boys. Paul Brannigan joins them on a tour of New York's mean streets. Everything's going nice and sleazy. You've refused drugs on 42nd Street and politely declined prostitute services on 1st Avenue. You've marvelled at mind-blowingly surreal American television which makes the far show look like Newsnight, with bikini-clad Spanish schoolgirls frolicking on Channel 8 and naked men on Channel 73 who seem intent upon shaking their genitalia off into orbit. So far, so good. Now you're watching Girls Against Boys vocalist-guitarist Scott McLeod play Paul in a scuzzy Lower East Side bar when your eyes fall upon a familiar-looking painting on the wall. Through a Heineken-fueled haze, you recognise the subject. Your ex-girlfriend. Naked. Not for the first time today. A Girls Against Boys lyric runs through your head. What the fuck is going on? And then you remember something that Girls Against Boys bassist, keyboard player, studio whiz kid Eli Janney said earlier. Welcome to New York City, he smiled. The world's biggest amusement park. Suddenly, it's starting to make sense. We first meet up with Scott and Eli at lunchtime in a restaurant off-Broadway. The guys look relaxed and happy, as well they might, for Girls Against Boys have just released their fourth album, House of Girls Against Boys, a fabulously filthy soundtrack to big city thrills, spills and pills, a mesmerising cocktail of chemicals, cheap liquor, love and confusion. The Girls Against Boys' house of ill repute stands loud and proud on Manhattan's grimy sidewalks, drawing energy from the city's manic intensity and beyond-driven citizens. I don't think our music could come from anywhere else, Eli admits. It's a cliche, but there really is no other city in the world quite like New York. The place is totally fucking insane. You've got the whole spectrum of humanity here. From lunatics in rags screaming on street corners to lunatics in limos screaming into cellular phones. The cars, clubs, bars and blurs of New York are the backdrop to our sound. Scott was the first member of the band to fall in love with the Big Apple and its worm-infested core. He moved here from Washington DC in 1989 to attend film school uh, following the dissolution of his previous band Soulside. When not making futuristic short films about cowboys living in Manhattan, he spent his time writing postcards to his former bandmates extolling the virtues of the city. Drummer Alexis Fleisig, bassist Johnny Temple and their ex-sound man, Eli were intrigued enough to follow their amiable friend up the east coast. By 1992 the four had regrouped on the mean streets of Brooklyn. The borough's seedier side soon became apparent. We had a mugger in Brooklyn who was a local legend, Scott recalls. He tried to mug us all at one time or another and eventually we even got to know his name. We'd swapped stories about his poor mugging techniques. Good muggers in New York don't stop and ask you questions. They'll just put your ass down and have you reaching for your wallet immediately. It can be kinda unsettling. Unsettling is a pivotal word in the Girls Against Boys vocabulary. It could describe many of the dark, edgy and sinister psychodramas on House of Girls Against Boys. Or it could describe a number of Scott's bizarre anecdotes. Like the one about a local hospital misplacing a box of human heads which were discovered putrefying and stinking on a Brooklyn street corner. Or the time he lent his car to a friend visiting Washington and it got obliterated in a gang shootout. Or the revelation that Girls Against Boys almost got pummeled by a coked up baseball bat wielding club owner in Memphis. Say what? 
That was pretty fucked up, McLeod states casually. We were playing with a Jesus lizard and the people at this club were being total assholes to us. I got a little drunk and belligerent because we thought they weren't going to pay us. I confronted this room full of huge fat guys who'd been sitting around drinking whiskey and snorting coke all day and they kind of freaked out and went for me. It was a total zoo, but we got out unscathed in the end. Perhaps it's not so surprising that Girls Against Boys find themselves in such scrapes. After all, their music dwells permanently on the wrong side of the tracks, loitering shamelessly with the freaks and the fuck-ups. The quartet don't try to be the dirtiest rock group around, they just are. It's those thrusting rhythms that promise to drag you down ill-lit side streets and fuck you breathless. That tension between Scott's nicotine-flavoured drawl and Eli's angelic croon. Scott lets out a throaty laugh. Man, this sleeve stuff seems to grow and grow, but I hope people hear more in our music. There are suggestive and sexual elements, but our songs exist in a state of surreal non-reality. There's a sleazy side to everything, and it can crop up anywhere. I remember strolling through Amsterdam and finding myself in this weird outdoor bar with huge TV screens showing penetration shots. There's a lot of inspiration to be had from incidents like that. I like the idea of our music acting as a soundtrack to fast-moving city life. Movement is good, even when it's just a movement from sobriety to unconsciousness. Where I come from, that's a cue for a drink. Time to seek out some destinations with party reputations. The kind of music you like from House of Girls Against Boys. We moved to 7A, a trendy East Village restaurant bar where the hip clientele includes supermodels, film stars and bands like the Beastie Boys. We chat about rumours that the quartet received the largest ever deal for an unbroken band when they signed to Geffen, who will issue subsequent Girls Against Boys. Eli, how do you know? Someone else is probably doing a bigger and better deal right now. We talk about impending fame, Scott being amused when crowds of kids at a recent Everclear show queued up for his autograph, and we talk about the band's fondness for champagne binges. We always ask for champagne on our rider now, Scott reveals. It started off as a joke, but it's led to some great evenings. Particularly when Alexis decides to get drunk, Eli laughs. About two or three times on tour, he'll just go off and it'll get really ugly. The best night was in Holland, when him and Johnny had a champagne battle. The whole club was dripping with champagne and Alexis was running down this t long table, kicking glasses in all directions. Everyone was diving out of the way, shouting, fuck. By comparison, it's a little sedate in 7A. So we move on to the Max Fish Bar, a semi-legendary watering hole frequented by New York bands like Helmet, Cop Shoot Cop and Unsane and a certain exhibitionist ex-girlfriend by all accounts. Drinking Heineken and watching pretty girls with pierced belly buttons play pool, time passes quickly and happily. Presumably, you two generally abstain from drunken debauchery then. No, but I get blackouts and don't remember anything, Eli concedes, but everyone takes great pains to fill in the blanks the next day. You can become a fucking basket case on tour, Scott adds. I had a crazy night with Johnny and Zaragoza in Spain, which was 42 hours of total insanity. We went from club to club doing speed and getting wasted. One guy had too much absinthe and we had to drag him around and prop him up outside bars, checking on him every 30 minutes to make sure he was still breathing. After that, we had to cancel the rest of the tour because we were so fucked up. Which is exactly the state they're heading for when a big yellow cab arrives to whisk them into the night. As Scott clambers in, he offers one final thought on New York and the House of Girls Against Boys. It's the place where anything can happen and all too frequently does. Next up in Kerrang! this week, we have singles. And the first single reviewed this week, and the reviews are done this week by Dave Reynolds, is Pusher Man with their single Show Me Slowly. This gets 4Ks. Pusher Man were on the pile last time I did singles duty, and there's now a bit of a buzz going on them. 
This single should help turn things into a roar, a quite magnificent performance of which the moody atmospherics of the mysterious 95% were most appealing. Three Colours Red, with their single This Is My Hollywood, this gets 4Ks. Very contemporary, this debut release from the hotly tipped London quartet should go down well with fans of Terrorvision and the Wild Hearts. The rhythmic soundscape of the main cut brings to mind the Age of Electric, whilst there's actually a real hint of the police in the groovy hate slick. This lot could well be huge. Curious then, that this should be released only on vinyl. Manhole, with their single Victim, this gets 2Ks. Gangster rap metal in a rage against the machine vein, but the difference here is that Manhole are fronted by Terry B, who bears a passing resemblance to Courtney Love. Terry has strong links with NWA, Eazy-E gave her a deal and co-produced her debut album Victim, passionately attacks rape and misogynistic violence against women, but this rap metal stuff just sounds old hat. Still, Manhole's debut album is out next month. The Prodigy, with their single Firestarter, this gets 2Ks. However remarkable the Prodigy are live, there's little here to suggest that they rock. Where are the guitars? Won't be saying that when it goes to number one. Cecil with their single, My Neck. This gets 3Ks. The second single from Scouse of Cecil finds angry young man Steve Williams in full throat, whilst his mates give him melodious support. Revealing symptom has plenty of spirit. And the single of the week this week is How Lucky Are You by Skin. This gets 4Ks. This might appear to be a predictable choice, but it was a close call against stiff competition. With this new single, Skin managed to sound a lot more contemporary without having jumped upon the taillights of the grunge bandwagon, and Spit On You is an equally grand moody rocker. Go grab this and see Skin again soon. Out of our heads, the bad religion guide to selling millions of records, get beaten up, take too many drugs and bankrupt your own record company. The original offspring reveal all to Jason Arnott. 16 years is a long time to be doing one thing, and Bad Religion have been playing uniquely melodic punk rock since 1980. The road to where they are today has presented obstacles, drugs, disagreements, near splits, but the Californians have just released their ninth album, The Grey Race. It's their second for major label Columbia to whom they defected from Epitaph two years ago. The band started out as three spike top 15 year old San Fernando Valley kids playing in singer Greg Graffin's garage. At this stage, they were surrounded by stoned out hashes who loved 70s metal. Punk rock was in no way the cool thing to be doing. In fact, it got them beaten up. How have Bad Religion lasted the course? It's a question Graffin and bassist Jay Bentley who joined the trio as soon as they realized they needed a bass player are about to tackle with furrowed brows. So what exactly was it like in the early days of the band? Greg Graffin, we had more drive and determination than many 15 year olds because we knew we wanted to play music but we had no real direction. Jay Bentley, I just wanted to get off the street so this guy called Tony Monza wouldn't kick my ass. Greg, Tony Monza's probably dead by now but we were scared kids back then. We have a thing against bullies because we were bullied endlessly. The metal kids were very fascist. Jay, Tony Monza would yell, listen to Rush motherfucker, while he was stuffing me into a trash can, and I'd be going, Sid Vicious, you fuckweed. When you got around to playing gigs, you had a real DIY ethic, creating your own posters and flyers. Greg, yeah, but that was because we had youthful energy, and we knew no one would do it for us. It wasn't like we tried to be revolutionary, and against the major labels, we were driven about promoting punk rock, and ourselves. 
Jay, we just did it because we had to, and because it was better than going to the park and getting the shit kicked out of you. You finally created your own label, Epitaph, which guitarist Brett Guritz eventually ran alone, leaving the band as soon as they signed to Columbia. Was that specifically what you wanted to do? Jay, no, he tried to get on other labels and they wouldn't sign us. We made demos that probably sounded like crap, but we liked them. I could see why labels would turn us down. Greg, it was like it is today. Even though we're on a major label, we don't get the recognition of more commercial bands. But luckily, Brett's father lent us about $1,500. With that, we could make a seven inch. Bad religion, press it, sell it quickly and make enough money for our first album. How did you feel when you completed 1982's How Could Hell Be Any Worse? Greg, it was about what I'd expected, but not as special as I'd hoped, but it's still a classic punk album of the era. Jay, it set a precedent for how we make records, create a stress-free environment and have a good time. Didn't things go wrong though when you recorded the unwisely experimental Into the Unknown LP in 1983? Jay, yeah that's basically why Epitaph went bankrupt for two years. I quit after playing one song because I didn't like what was happening. As I walked out the door I yelled, if that song makes it on the record with me playing on it, I'll sue everyone. Looking back, it was a very progressive album, but everyone went their own ways for a while after that. Greg, we were experimenting with studios and synthesizers, but we were still a bunch of kids and we didn't know how you should stick to your guns, no matter what the musical climate is. It was lucky that we made that mistake so young because we were able to learn from it. As a result, we've been able to persevere through the metal years, the grunge years, and now the punk years. Jay, the secret to success is persistence and letting your audience find you. Stop changing your fucking name every two years. But it was good that unlike most bands, we couldn't blame the label. Were drugs at all to blame uh, for Brett Guritz has admitted to using heroin at the time. Yeah, the drugs and shit had something to do with the hiccups, but fuck, we were kids. By the time we were 18, we'd already done more than what some people ever do. Greg, Jay was more classic in the sense that he didn't do the trendy cocaine and heroin. Jay, I went uh, straight to being the fucker. I like to drink and it lasted a fucking long time. I'm surprised I'm still here. When did you become able to live off the band? Jay, the last two years, if that. Greg, we bought our first houses while we were still on Epitaph with money from doing other jobs, but we were able to survive just from music by about 1993. Jay, I wasn't willing to give up my job because I still didn't believe you can live out of this. Then I realized you have to make a decision and that does give the band more of a serious edge because I don't have a nine to five job anymore. And this was, and is, a hobby gone completely fucking haywire. Do Columbia Records see you as their pet punk band? Greg, I don't even think they know we're here. Jay, here's a quote for you, although I won't say who said it. Oh, you have a single. It's like Spinal Tap. You know, hi, I'm Marty fucking Columbia representative. I've got this new band, The Grey Race, with their album Bad Religion. It pisses you off because you've been in control for so long. But eventually, you just have to get real and admit that we couldn't run our own label anymore. How do you feel about Epitaph upstarts like Rancid and Offspring surpassing yourselves? Greg, old people ask this of us all the time. Jay, they mean, aren't you pissed off? Aren't you? Jay, no. That's totally belittling to 16 years of work. Things we've done have meant more to me than anything I could fucking hang on a wall. To say that I was pissed off would be saying to everyone who likes the band, fuck you, you're not enough. Greg, but also, with them acknowledging us as an influence, it means that the fruits of our labour have paid off. That makes me feel very proud. 
basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the first album reviewed this week is Just As Life by Almighty. Reviewed by Liam Shiles, this gets 4Ks. And you thought the Almighty said it all with Crank. Nope, that one was just the end of the beginning, the final step in the transition from free and easy knob rock to full force ranting machine. Just Add Life is the start of the next chapter of the Almighty story, a chapter wherein memorable scenes are going to feature more strongly than before, and where the vitriolic eloquence that first raised its angry head on Crank will be allowed to run amok. You thought Crank was a hard record. It was Walter and the Softies compared to Just Add Life's Dennis and Nasher. Not that ongoing and total and independent the Terran are as conventionally heavy as Wrench or Jonestown Mind. Just Add Life is less riffy than its predecessor and less shouty, but producer Chris Sheldon has done his usual deconstruction job, leaving the almighty of 1996 sounding pissed off, fat-free and more emphatic than a headbutt from a rhinoceros. This lack of sonic thrills makes Just Add Life extremely difficult to describe. A great song is a great song is a great song. This album has 13 of them, and telling you what they're like is about as easy as whistling about sculpture. Only the first single, all sussed out, bothers to adorn itself in any way. And as Ricky Warwick booms, you can't fight the power when you ain't got the power to fight over a thumping brass accompaniment. You realise that not only is this probably the first time in history that trumpets have been grafted onto a rock song without leaving it sounding crass and cheesy, but also that this is possibly the strongest Warwick pen tune to date. There are plenty on this album which aren't far behind it. Do you understand? Hurtles atop a screaming guitar lead towards a crowning chorus that must have had Ricky grinning into his pint when it popped into his head. Feed the Need hammers away with the unstoppable intensity of heavy machinery, almost masking out a snippet of somebody else's song that I defy you to notice first time around, while Afraid of Flying is the most breathlessly full-on sprint for the finish since the Wild Hearts blurting out Sucker Punch almost three years ago. Only one number, and we suspect it's Warwick's favourite, eases back on the pace any. It's called Coalition Star, and it was originally an unfinished tune belonging to Ricky's longtime idols, The Ruts. They invited him to finish it off, and he was only too happy to oblige, adding an especially cognate lyric about the denial of feelings in order to conform to what is deemed acceptable behaviour. Warwick has confirmed that he wanted to make Just Add Life a record loaded with songs that would sound great played on the radio. The Almighty have done just that. If you want to, you can holler your brains out along to this album, though as you do so, you won't be able to prevent a snarl from distorting your face. This is wilder and infinitely more wonderful than anything the Almighty have so far produced. The next review this week is for the album Juice by Send No Flowers. Reviewed by Mike Peake, this gets 4Ks. Devoid of warmth, humour and anything even remotely resembling spangly pop rock, Juice is the right album in the wrong place at the wrong time. Singularly mournful and pessimistic, it serves up bleak, harrowing soundscapes that have as much in common with Terrorvision and the charts as Prince Charles does with Princess Die. Whatever, Juice is a magnificent LP and as a debut album it is damn near impossible to fault. You don't know it yet, but you're choking for this album the same way you were gagging for Pearl Jam's 10. When you hear fourth track Fireman, you'll drop your trousers, shed tears of joy, and wonder why you've never heard of Send No Flowers before. Britain's best kept secret, oh yes. Juice clicks just a few songs in. Opening track, Evervescent Smile, kicks in like a line of speed. Then Bitter Taste smashes a pint glass in your face, and Porcelain follows up with a vicious left hook. 
other standout tracks, take your pick. Sepia, Candidate, Wrong, Cold, all stamped with the compelling SNF mark, yet each perfectly individual. Difficult to pigeonhole though not entirely innovative, Bristol-based Sendo Flowers and their wintry Seattle-influenced sound are perhaps best personified on the video to latest single downfall, the penultimate track on Juice. Bound and gagged in some grotesque torture house from hell, the band look for all the world like extras from the film 7. This album then is the soundtrack. And if you can cope with the one nagging criticism about Juice, namely that it sounds almost too clinical and precise, then you're laughing. Deal with it. In an age when raw punk and sparkly pop are the order of the day and you can gorge yourself stupid on an album brimming over with rich vocal harmonies, punishing bass lines and riffs to die for. So, if you're still lamenting the fact that Alice in Chains' last LP was erring on the side of CAC, then Send No Flowers could well be the band for you. And Juice is one of the best rock albums so far this year. And lastly this week, we have Unplugged by Kiss. Reviewed by Lee Marklu. This gets 5Ks. The man from Terrorvision, he say yeah. When Kerrang asked me if I fancy reviewing the latest Kiss album, I answered in the affirmative faster than a rocket out of Ace Freely's Les Paul. My blind devotion to all things Kiss has been well documented in these pages and dutifully suffered by Mark Tone and Shutt for the past 10 years. But the question is, are they still the hottest band in the world? This is 1996 after all, not the halcyon days of 76 when they could justifiably lay claim to the title they invented. The answer? Simple. Just gaze at the set list for this album, no contest, welcome to the best Kiss long player in 15 years. Everyone's familiar with the unplugged format by now, lots of them are real dogs, some have revived flagging careers and most stretch the description very thin indeed. Kiss however have done themselves proud, I wish I'd been there. Proceedings a kick off with Coming Home, a lesser known track from Hotter Than Hell, bliss for Kiss train spotters everywhere. Plastercaster, Gene Simmons' ode to Cynthia Plastercaster and her saucy little hobby is up next and it's already clear they're sticking exactly to the original versions. Guitar solos, vocal harmonies and all, top fucking marks. Lloyd, our guitar tech and the world's other biggest Kiss fan will have babies when he hears Gene's going blind, it's godlike. Do You Love Me is a hoot. An early incarnation of Terrorvision used to cover this, but only Paul Stanley can get away with a line, You like my 7-inch leather heels. Domino more than holds its head up in such exalted company and sure knows something is pure pop. Awesome. World Without Heroes finds Simmons at his brooding, balladic best and rock bottom is so chest-beatingly rock and roll, you're right back in the middle of the audience on Kiss Alive. Flip your tape over for more memories. Gene's Lennon-esque slowy See You Tonight from his underrated solo album is followed by the rock ballad of the 80s, I Still Love You. Then out come the strings for Paul's direct take on First Cut Is The Deepest, that is Every Time I Look At You from Revenge. I reckon this version walks all over it. Then it's the moment we've been waiting for. Out crawl Ace Freely and Peter Chris, and the original Kiss are back together for the first time since the Shandy video. We get a flat, what else, 2000 man from Ace, and a mushy Beth from Peter, before everyone's back for a rollicking couplet of nothing to lose and rock and roll all night to close the show. This is what it's all about. This is classic Kiss. The reunion tour is on. So Gene, how about some support slots? Charts and the number one album this week is Roots by Sepultura. Number one in the indie uh, charts is Roots by Sepultura and number one in the singles charts is Perseverance by Terrorvision. The Reader's Top 10 this week comes from Reese Hershey from Bushy Park. 
Their chart begins one predictable corn, two I stay away, Alice in Chains, three cowpoke poor, four minus blindfold deftones, five mouthful war pantera, six through the eyes of ruby smashing pumpkin, seven the cowboy song faith no more, eight blue flame ford truly, nine welcome to paradise green day and ten falling away mordred. Star tracks this week come from tripping daisy frontman Tim DeLaughter. Their chart begins one John Spencer blues explosion, two boss hog, three the sonics, four UFO FO and five built to spill. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Kinky Sex and American Psychos. Garbage. We're here to fuck you up. Machine Head. New songs, new lineup, and exclusive new pictures. Soundgarden. How a talent show kickstarted their career. Almighty. Ricky Warwick's Root. Bloody Roots. Plus Metallica. Everclear. Skin Drain. Offspring. White Zombie. And free artwork stickers. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then. Have a good week, everyone. And yeah, uh, we'll be back next week. Bye for now.